hopefully Psalm 16 again. That'll be the first place we go. We'll look at a, at a whole host of different scriptures this morning, uh, like we usually do, but uh, this being Resurrection Sunday, we won't have one specific uh, passage or set of verses that we're looking at, but rather just kind of looking at what the Bible has to say this morning about this uh, most important truth, the fact that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And that's, of course, what we're celebrating today. It's really what we celebrate every Sunday when uh, we gather together. That's why we gather on a Sunday, because that's the day of the week that the Lord uh, rose from the dead, unlike uh, the Sabbath day that that God set aside for the Jewish people, the seventh day of the week, Saturday as we know it, uh, as their kind of day that was set aside to worship the Lord. But when Jesus Christ came into the world and died and rose again on Sunday, suddenly the people who had believed in him gathered together on the Lord's day. And so uh, that's why we meet on a Sunday However, today being uh, Resurrection Sunday or Easter Sunday, I think, I think we can say that, uh, that word, by the way. Uh, uh, it's good to remember specifically the resurrection because this is actually what uh, is the foundation for everything that we believe. If Jesus didn't walk out of the grave 2,000 years ago, we might as well be doing something else today. And so it, it is definitely worthy for us to, to remember this, to focus on this at least, at least one Sunday out of the year, if not uh, every day of the year, because everything that we believe rests on this one single truth that Jesus Christ is alive in heaven in his physical body. In, in a resurrected body, he is alive today. Paul said it like this in 1 Corinthians 15, in verse 16, he says, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. And isn't that the truth? If, if, if Jesus isn't risen from the dead, you know, why are we doing this? We, we would deserve to be pitied, but he in fact is risen again. And that is, that truth is the most important truth that there is in this world today. And so as we look at this, we'll look at a promise. That's why we're looking at Psalm 16, because this truth was was actually promised long before Christ even came into this world. We'll see how that promise was preserved in the life of Christ. And then we'll look more at this precious truth, the ramifications of this precious truth that Jesus is alive, that he has risen again. But we begin with this promise, particularly, this isn't the only place that, that the resurrection uh, of the Messiah is, is mentioned in the Bible. Uh, but one of them in particular, Psalm 16, is a very powerful uh, 
prophecy, if you will, of the fact that the Messiah was going to rise again, that he would not see decay, as it says in our English Bibles, the way that other people do. Psalm 16:10, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. And there's actually a lot of a lot of controversy about this particular psalm in theological circles anyway, which is uh, very strange to me that there's any uh, controversy over whether or not this particular verse is actually speaking of Jesus or not, but we'll get to that here shortly. And why, why is this the most important truth, this fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Why is this the most important truth? Well, probably the main reason for it being the most important truth is that it solves our number one problem as human beings. The fact that we are all going to die one day uh, physically and that we are all dead spiritually. This is nothing new to, to anyone who is sitting here. This is kind of one of the struggles for, uh, for me anyway as a pastor and a teacher of the Bible uh, you know, I know everybody in here pretty well, and and <laughs> uh, people have been saved for literally decades, and you know this is just another another uh, Easter Sunday to go to church or another day to be in church. So I'm not going to tell you any earth shattering thing, uh, as it's been said. If it's new, it's not for you. So you know that's kind of one of the things to get over in our study of the Bible. It is this idea that that I think we get from society? We know that we know that we get this idea from society that things have to be constantly changing. You know, if you wear uh, clothes from two months ago, you know what what is wrong with you? That's so yesterday. Uh, let alone uh, you know these kinds of ideas. There's always something new, and social media and our 24-hour news. Uh, cycle. It just feeds into this human trait of always wanting something new. But the Bible is not something new, and we ought to be uh, steeped in it and understand, have these kinds of truths just really ingrained into our minds because our nature wants to take us to something that is new. We're, We're naturally uh, attracted to that, so it behooves us to return to the truth, to have our to have our minds uh, recaged, if you will. Uh, for example, in in flying, we uh, we have devices that uh, that aren't a GPS, and uh, it's a, a different kind of thing. An inertial reference system is what it's called. But you plug into that where you are currently. When we start the day, we tell that uh, device in the airplane where we are sitting. And that gives it a, a reference point to know where it is. Now the airplane knows where it's sitting in Chicago or whatever city you're in. Then you take off and you fly to Los Angeles and, and the machine gets off a little bit in that three or four hours or even a half hour flight, however long it is. It, it can't quite keep track perfectly 
of where it is. So when you get to the new destination, before you fly again, you reset that box in the airplane. You tell, okay, here's, here's where you are now, precisely. This is where we are sitting right now. And it re-cages that thing. Well, our, our brains need exactly the same thing. I think that's why we meet every Sunday and why the Bible tells us it's a good idea to, to meet every Sunday and have our brains re-caged. So what is the Bible even about? That's, that's where we need to be re-caged because you, you leave the four walls of our church or you leave uh, teaching that is similar two hours, and you're going to hear a myriad of different answers about what the Bible is about. And uh, the Bible is about how God has solved the problem of sin. That is our number one issue. Our number one issue isn't who's in the White House or high taxes or or arthritis or heart problems or whatever situation you're facing in life. That isn't your number one problem. The number one problem that you have, even as a Christian, is sin. And how do we, how do we deal with that? If you're an unbeliever, that most certainly is your number one problem, is the fact that you are separated from the holy God who created you. And that is because of sin. But the Bible tells us how to fix that problem, how God has already solved that problem for us and how we can be made right with him. And this, this separates the Bible from every other religious text. That the, the overwhelming majority of religious texts that aren't the Bible have to do with some guy's, some man's idea about uh, well, when it comes down to it, how he can be made uh, wealthy, powerful, have a hundred wives or whatever he thinks is a, is a great thing. And you just follow along with him and, and you'll have the same thing as, as I have. That, that is religion. That's man. Some could be uh, made under good pretense and, and have the idea of how, what we need to do ourselves to be right with God. That's religion in a nutshell. The Bible is not religion. The Bible tells us how God has solved our problems and how we can trust in what he has done to be made right with him. And that all begins right in the very beginning because the problem of sin was introduced very, very early in human history. Genesis 3.15, of course, after Adam and Eve had sinned, God pronounces a series of judgments against them and against Satan. And this is uh, Genesis 3.15, the first promise that God is going to solve this problem that was just introduced into the world in Genesis chapter 3, this problem of sin. God says to Satan, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, Eve, and between your seed, your descendants, and her seed, her uh, descendant, we learn later, singular there, he, the seed of the woman, shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. There, God promising that the seed of the woman would solve this problem of sin. He will crush sin. 
And so in part of that, uh, we see that a sacrifice is needed for sin. And uh, this is something that we can see across cultures, across time, that, that cultures, all nearly every culture, until recent times when we just decided to get rid of God altogether, uh, societies would have some sort of sacrificial system because there's just something inside of us that tells us, yeah, I'm a sinner, I'm going to die, I need to do something to make myself right with God or the gods or whatever your uh, system of thought is. You will find animal sacrifice uh, across uh, societies. And we see it in the Bible. We see the reason for this because the, the consequence of sin is death. Genesis 3.19, God said so to Adam that he was going to die. Now, Genesis 3.19, by the sweat of your face, Adam, you will eat bread till you return to the ground because from it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. Because you have sinned, you are now going to physically die. Romans 6.23, Paul says, for the wages of sin is death. Death is the result of sin, as we know both physically and spiritually. And there's something, something in us, again, that tells us that we need to be right with God, with our Holy Creator. And the Bible tells us that. The Bible tells us uh, that we need to be uh, made right with him because he is our creator. He is our uh, redeemer as we're going to see. But as our creator, that makes us responsible to him. And that's uh, uh, part of why the world is so uh, messed up and wrong. And our ideas about religion uh, in this world are so wrong because we're not getting them from the Bible. We're getting them from our own understanding. And, it, and it's foundational to that is the fact that God created this world. We've seen this a few times in our study of Revelation that people and angels and these beings in heaven, when, the, when we have these scenes of worship, quite often they, the first thing that they recognize about God is not that he's uh, super powerful or that he's loving or that he's light or these kinds of things that are true about God, but it is that he is our creator and we are therefore responsible to him and we should be uh, worshiping him because he is our creator. And if you notice that creation was really at least in American culture, maybe Western culture, the idea that God created the world out of nothing, ex nihilo, was kind of the first pillar of the Bible that people started chipping away at, if not just getting, getting rid of uh, altogether. And this was kind of the idea of, of liberal scholars, if you will, is to go after creation. And by liberal, I don't mean Democrats or anything to do with their politics. I mean the way that they interpret the Bible, what they think 
about the Bible, a conservative person, again, nothing to do with politics, but a conservative biblical thinker understands that the Bible is God's infallible word recorded for us so that we can know who God is and and how to have eternal life with him. A liberal thinker will chip away at that. Well, okay, were there really miracles in the Bible? Did God really do that? Did God really create the world in six days out of out of nothing? They, they chip away at the veracity or the truth of the Bible, particularly about who God is and, and the kinds of things that he does. Well, he is, in fact, our creator, and he is worthy of worship because of that. And he, he has revealed in his word how this problem of sin is to be dealt with. And he, in fact, did reveal that a sacrifice is necessary for sin. Something has to die in the place of a person for sin to be satisfied in the eyes of God. And we see that uh, God himself was the first one who uh, provided a sacrifice, if you will, for sin for man. Remember from Genesis again that he uh, made skin clothes from the skins of an animal for Adam and Eve to cover them. Well, you don't cut the skin off of an animal while it's still alive, or if you do, it it dies as as a consequence of that. Something had to die so that Adam and Eve could be covered. A great picture for us of this spiritual truth as God so often does, like we talked about incense being a a visual representation of our prayers rising, communion being a visual representation for us of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Well, here's God killing an animal to show that something has to die in your place for your sins to be taken care of. We see this in the in the account of Cain and Abel. Cain killed Abel. That's an easy way, the way that I remember who's who when I'm trying to, trying to think about it. Uh, Cain brought a, brought a sacrifice to the Lord from the ground. Abel brought an animal sacrifice to God. One of those was acceptable to God, Abel's. One of them was not. Cain's sacrifice from the ground or thing, uh, plants and these kinds of things. That wasn't satisfactory to God. Point being, God had a program already in place. Even though we don't have all the details about it, we still clearly see Abel's sacrifice was pleasing to God. Cain's was not. That caused a problem. Noah, Genesis 8, talks about him uh, offering sacrifices to the Lord when he came out of the ark. Abraham, uh, Genesis 22, he also, uh, he was instructed to sacrifice his only begotten son, his only son uh, in Genesis chapter 22. God, in his mercy, in his grace, provided a, a substitute for the substitute, if you will. Isaac wasn't to be uh, killed. Instead, there was a, a ram to take his place. So why uh, s- 
does something need to, to die in the place? Because uh, the consequences of sin is death. Uh, sin leads to death. Therefore, a sacrifice is needed to satisfy God in terms of sin. If I am to have life and I am a sinner and the consequences of my sin is death, then something has to die in my place so that I don't die, if that, if that makes sense. Something has to be sacrificed. Something else has to lose its life in my place as a payment for my sin if I am to be right with God. That's what a sacrifice is. One person or thing for another. You can uh, sacrifice your time to take care of someone else. That, that's just the definition of a sacrifice. If you are going to help somebody with a project and you had something else on your plate to do, but you decide to instead help that person, you're sacrificing this in order to help them. Same thing with sin. Death is on me because of sin in order to take that away someone else or something else to take death out of the picture something or someone else has to die and the bible of course tells us genesis 3:15 that the seed of the woman is going to take care of the problem of sin that means he's going to die in our place by definition he that seed of the woman has to die he has to be a sacrifice in our place he is the one who is going to be the the sacrifice for sin and that's what really the whole sacrificial system that god gave to the israelite people was to lead them to this person jesus the god man who was going to die in their place for sin it was a picture that would give them lead them to the truth in reality of Jesus being the one who is going to die for their sins. Paul says it this way, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. The Jewish people are celebrating Passover uh, this past week and, and ongoing. And Paul is using a lot of uh, Jewish references there, cleaning out the old leaven. That's what they do, the, uh, the Jewish people do. They remove, try to remove all the leaven from their homes in this week leading up to Passover when, where the, the lambs uh, used to be sacrificed in the temple era where they would sacrifice the lambs and eat them as a, as a sign that they have their faith in God's provision for their sin from that first Passover in, in the book of Exodus when they left Egypt. Paul here is saying that Jesus is our Passover. So clean out the old leaven 
uh, Christian, clean out the, the sin that's in your life now by the power of the Holy Spirit because you are, in fact, unleavened. You are, in fact, without sin as a believer in Christ. So you ought to be, as the Jewish people symbolically remove the leaven from their home, you ought to be removing the sin from your life by walking in the power of the Holy Spirit because Christ has been sacrificed for you. And he promised, God promised to do this uh, all the way back in at least Psalm 16. I'm not sure if that's the first, well, in fact, it's not the first uh, reference to resurrection in the Bible, but it, it certainly is one of them. Psalm 16 and verse 10, again, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Psalm 16 is, is just a wonderful psalm of trust in God. Uh, talk about uh, one condition for being made right with God. We see it in Psalm 16. It's really throughout, throughout the Psalms. He says in verse 1, uh, which is the author of this psalm being David, of course. It tells us that right there in, in the beginning, that first uh, phrase, a mikdame, excuse the Hebrew pronunciation of David. Uh, that's actually in the text, unlike if in our study Bibles when you see headings and that kind of thing, chapter headings or, or titles for chapters. Uh, those things aren't in the Bible. This one actually is in the Hebrew saying that, well, David is the one who wrote this. So it's just always hilarious when you read uh, scholars in their commentaries about the Psalms in particular debating who wrote the Psalm. Well, that's interesting. It, it sort of tells us right, <laughs> right in the beginning. This is of David. David wrote this Psalm. He lived about a thousand years before Christ. Notice what he says right in verse 1. Preserve me, save me, O God, for I take refuge in you. Save me or preserve me because I'm, I'm trusting in you. You are my only hope. That's very similar, if not exactly the same, to us in our uh, trust in God, trust in Christ and his sacrifice is the single condition for him uh, rescuing us, saving us from the punishment of sin because we trust in him. I, and then he expands on that. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. You are my God. You are the only one I am trusting in. I have nothing good besides you. I mean, it's all right there in the first two verses of this psalm. I don't, nothing that I'm doing, no good work, no uh, sacrifices that I might be making are any good in comparison to you. The only good that I have comes from you, God. David clearly, completely has his trust in God. And uh, down in verse 10, the scholars again will debate, you know, well, is this really talking about Jesus? I don't think this really has anything to do with uh, the Messiah, they will say. Uh, this is just David talking about himself, essentially. And we'll, we'll see that's kind of an interesting conclusion to come to since both Peter and Paul quote this psalm we're going to see later in reference to Christ and his 
resurrection. So don't believe everything you read in a, in a commentary. You can, can use some uh, discernment as you go. Jesus will be resurrected, and David says so in Psalm 16.10 that the Holy One will not undergo decay. He will, he will not uh, stay in the grave when he dies. And this is something that even uh, perhaps this might be the first reference to the resurrection in the Bible, the book of Job, the first, probably the first uh, book of the Bible uh, that was written is the book of Job. And he has this to say in Job 19, beginning in verse 23, he says, Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Here's some good evidence that, that writing is something that was very early on in human history. That's another debate that scholars have. Well, Moses couldn't have written the Bible because there was no such thing as written language when Moses lit. Oh, that's interesting because Job is talking about writing in books. He even knows how to do it. Verse 24, that with an iron stylus and lead, they were engraved in the rock forever. Verse 25, as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. Not only does Job believe that the Redeemer lives, and that he's obviously he's going to be a sacrifice for sin, and so he's by definition going to have to be resurrected. Job himself believes in a resurrection for himself. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold and whom my eyes will see and not another. My heart faints within me. Job says he expected the Savior to be resurrected. Not only that, he expected himself to be resurrected and see the Redeemer living on this earth. That caused his, his heart to faint within him. The Bible tells us that the seed of the woman was going to be the sacrifice for sin and not only die, but he's also going to be resurrected. He would conquer death. In this, he is conquering the consequences of sin. The, the consequence of sin is death. Jesus, in his resurrection, proved that he conquered death and that he can grant that life to us through his actions. That's the promise. And we see the, the promise being fulfilled in the life of of Jesus Christ himself, it being preserved. Uh, Matthew 28, again, a passage that we're all very familiar with. Matthew 28, verse 1, it says, Now after the Sabbath, uh, on that Passover uh, season and that, that time 2,000 years ago, notice the, the kind of chronological nature of the language. We're pinpointing it here. After the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look 
at the grave where Jesus had been laid, of course. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here for he has risen. Just as he said, come see the place where he was lying. This uh, preservation, if you will, this resurrection, this, this isn't something that should have come as a surprise to the disciples, uh, even though it did. This was something that Jesus talked about really throughout his, his earthly ministry. He predicted this truth that he would die for the sins of the world and that he would be raised again he even told them the number of days that it would be. On the third day, he will be resurrected. Matthew sixteen twenty one says, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. So, uh, Peter really, in my mind, uh, gets a bad rap that he, uh, everybody likes to point out how often he puts his foot in his mouth and he's always saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing. In my mind, Peter was the one who had, was brave enough to speak up. <laughs> I, I assure you that he wasn't the only apostle. The rest of the apostles were standing there with, with Jesus, and they were saying, oh, Peter, you're so crazy. You don't, you, don't, you don't understand this. Of course, he was the only one who had the courage to speak up to the Lord, to say something to him. And he obviously gets a very stern rebuke there, in uh, Jesus telling him, you don't have your mind on God's way of thinking or God's interests, but you have them on your own. And that is the problem with religion. That, that is religion in a nutshell. Peter was, was kind of had a, a religious mind at that point, thinking, okay, you know, we're, we're go heading into the kingdom here and I'm going to be somebody important in that kingdom and uh, you, so you can't die. You can't, you can't die and take away from me the things that I'm earning here by being your faithful follower in uh, these kinds of things. Obviously, Peter's, Peter's mind was very much changed and conformed to the image of Christ as, as he goes through his life and, and the experiences that he had. But uh, here, Jesus predicting telling the apostles that he's going to uh, go to Jerusalem and die for their sins. And we see that uh, in the other gospel accounts as well. Mark chapter 8, Luke chapter 9, verses 22 through 27 say much the same idea, that Jesus on multiple occasions, we saw in our study of Luke, uh, I guess it's been several years ago now, but throughout his ministry, he was telling them several times 
that he's going to die. He's going to be crucified. He's going to die. He's going to raise again, rise again. And uh, again, another, another point towards the idea that we as humans need to be reminded of these truths over and over again. And of course, this, we're celebrating this today, the fact that he did die and he did rise again. This, this truth was preserved in human history. If we could go back in time 2,000 years ago, this isn't a myth or this isn't something that was uh, made up by a group of people in order to get them in their clutches. This is, these are facts, facts of, of history that we believe in. And it's recorded in all four, again, in all four gospel accounts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all give descriptions of what happened on that day when Jesus walked out of the grave. And some skeptics, of course, will point to the differences in the accounts and say, ah, see, they they don't, the the accounts don't match perfectly. Therefore, uh, this, we can just disregard this. But of course, as we've studied uh, the Gospel of Luke and looked at the other Gospel accounts, we know that these are four different people with four different audiences, uh, four different purposes in their, in their writing. So of course, they're going to point out different details about the, ver- about the uh, various events that took place on that day. But it's, again... Uh, preserved in God's Word. What do we think of God's Word? Did He really create the world in six days? Are Adam and Eve literal people who walked on the earth? Was there even a temple? Is the temple a real thing? That's something that's debated uh, among people today. And, uh, and of course, the was there a flood? That's another thing uh, that is hotly, no, it's not even hotly contested. You are canceled immediately. If you begin to believe in a worldwide flood, you're some kind of crazy person. Well, what do we think of God's word? This is one of the things that really drove me to, to trust in Christ. What, is, is this the Bible or is it not? Is everything in it true? Or, or is there even one thing that isn't true? Well, why do I believe any of it? Did Jesus, is he really even a person? That's another thing that scholars will debate. Is Jesus a real historical person? Uh, well, my and your entire salvation depends on Jesus being a real person who went to the cross for our sins, died, and rose again on the third day. What do we think of God's word? Well, all four accounts of Jesus' life point to the fact that he was, that this truth was preserved, that he did in fact die. He didn't pass out, have a stroke and be revived. He physically died and he physically rose again uh, for our sins. All of the gospel accounts show us this. And this truth is the foundation of Christianity, of biblical Christianity, is this fact of the resurrection. And even Jesus himself was the first one, probably, to proclaim 
this truth after angels did. Jesus taught this truth of his resurrection to the apostles on the road to Emmaus, Luke 24, verses 13 through 27. And and he took them not to just the events of his life on this earth, but he, if you'll remember Luke 24, he took them to the scriptures, to the Old Testament. That's the only Bible that existed at that time is the Old Testament. Jesus takes them to the Old Testament scriptures and lays out for them how his life perfectly matched up with what was recorded in the Hebrew Bible in the Old Testament to show them that what they were believing in is, in fact, true. And then Peter, in the first sermon of the, of the church age, after the church began on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit descended on these people, indwelt them for the first time permanently, never to leave them again, beginning of the church. Peter appropriately delivers a sermon on the first day of, of the church age, And he essentially lays out the facts of Jesus's life, how he is the Jewish Messiah. He's talking to Jewish people and you should have believed in him, but instead you crucified him. Acts 2.29, Peter says, Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. He could have He could have pointed to it. Verse 30, And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. Quoting Psalm 16, 10. This Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. Peter saw Jesus with his own two eyes that he was alive after having been dead. And he preached that truth to the Jewish people there on that Pentecost uh, after Jesus had risen from the dead. And he quotes Psalm 16.10. Again, why would scholars say that Psalm 16 doesn't have to do with Jesus? I'm not really sure. Peter thought that it did. So did Paul. Acts 13, on his first missionary journey, the first kind of opportunity that's recorded in the ministry of Paul uh, on his first missionary journey, he also, speaking to primarily Jewish people, He recounts that the whole history of the Jewish people comes to David because promises were given to David about this seed of the woman coming from the line of David. Jewish people knew that. This one who's going to crush sin, they refer to him as the Messiah, the Greek word uh, being Christ, meaning the same thing. They, They knew that this Christ was going to defeat sin. And so Paul like Peter, talks about David to them. He says in Acts 13, verse 35, uh, speaking of David, therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep 
and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. For he whom God raised did not undergo decay. Both Peter and Paul reference Psalm 16.10 to say this clearly is pointing to Jesus Christ. A thousand years before he lived, the Bible says that he was not only going to live, but he was also going to die and he was going to be resurrected. This preservation of Jesus Christ was preached. And in fact, Jesus told his disciples to preach this truth throughout the entire world. And of course, that is still going on today because it is the most precious truth. This truth is so precious that it can in fact give us life. It can conquer death for us, which is beyond incredible. John 20 and verse 29 says, Jesus said to him, to Thomas, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. This resurrection was seen by eyewitnesses. That's uh, one of the primary aspects of this truth that we see in the Gospels and why it's recorded for us is because it was seen by people. Uh, Thomas, he wasn't there the first time. He was there the second time that Jesus appeared to them and he believed because he saw it with his own two eyes. The, the, uh, the gospel account is very, very clear about that. Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, uh, a chapter about the resurrection that is uh, incumbent upon us to understand, 1 Corinthians 15, he says that 500 people saw the risen Christ at one time, and some of them are still alive even today. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. First importance for us. Number one, truth. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas or Peter, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also, Paul says. So you don't have to take my word for it, or Peter's word for it, or James's word for it. Uh, Jesus appeared to 500 nobodies, <laughs> 500 people at one time, and most of them are still alive. Go talk to them. Jesus is alive, he says. Again, here in God's word, it is recorded for us. And the resurrection is our only hope. But there are some caveats that go, go along with it. We have to, first off, uh, believe in the right Jesus. 
John 8, 24. Therefore, Jesus speaking, therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Now there are unfortunately all kinds of Jesuses, if you will, in this world. And all of them are wrong except for the one that is portrayed in our Bibles, that is, that Jesus is God, that he is the second person of the Trinity. He is uncreated. He is eternal. He has always been. Uh, And all of these aspects of Christ make up the quote-unquote right Jesus to believe in. He has to be God. He has to be without sin. He has to have been born of a virgin in order to not have a a sin nature. He has to be fully God. He has to be fully man. He has to have actually died on the cross, and he has to actually have been raised again. If you're not believing in a Jesus who fulfills all of those requirements, you're not believing in the right Jesus. And that is a necessity for salvation. Jesus himself said, you have to believe that I am, I am, Jesus literally says there. That's why the Jews picked up stones to stone him with when he said these, these words. You have to believe, Jesus claiming himself to be God there. You have to believe that he is God or you will die in your sins. You have to believe he is the only way to salvation. It's not Jesus plus my works. Not even the right Jesus plus my works is is good enough. Uh, It's only Jesus Christ and what he did for us. He is the only way to the Father. Uh, Quote, unquote, good Muslims or good Jews or good Buddhists or good Sikhs or good people aren't good enough to be right with the holy God who created them. You must trust in the sacrifice for sin that God says is the correct sacrifice. Everybody understands, everybody recognizes that sin leads to death. The atheists just, they just put it out of their minds. They just don't think about it. That doesn't mean it isn't true. Sin leads to death. And the world recognizes that. So there must be a sacrifice that is suitable to pay for sin. The creator decides what's suitable. He is the one who decides. I don't, you don't, the Pope doesn't, uh, the Dalai Lama doesn't decide, some Muslim imam doesn't decide. God in heaven decides and he has decreed that it would be Jesus Christ and his sacrifice is the one that will satisfy him. Not one that I come up with, the one that God has decided. And he has decided that it is the sacrifice of Christ. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He can say that with 100% confidence because only his death 
is a suitable sacrifice for our sins. And this truth was written down and recorded for us so that we may have life. John 20, verses 29 through 31. Again, uh, these have been written, verse 31, so that you may believe. John wrote his gospel so that you would be convinced of this truth and that by believing that Jesus is the Christ, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the seed of the woman, the one who would crush Satan, solve the problem of sin, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Notice there's no other there's no other uh, uh, requirement there other than believing, only believing. Believing is trusting in is the only requirement for us to have salvation. Trusting in the sacrifice that God has determined satisfies him for sin. He is the Holy One. He is the Creator Clearly, he sets the rules for what is going to make us right with him in terms of our sin. And that the thing that makes us right is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. In his resurrection, that isn't where the good news ends. We don't just have a pie-in-the-sky idea of, oh, I get to go to heaven forever. No, it's, it's even more than that. You too will be resurrected, just like Job. Somehow Job knew that he was going to be resurrected because his Redeemer lives. We too can have confidence in that. Truth, 2 Corinthians 4.14, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. Job, again, expected to be resurrected. Job 19 verses 23 through 27. Martha, long before Christ went to the cross, he was on his way to Jerusalem when this incident took place. John 11 verses 21 through 27, another great resurrection passage. She expected to be resurrected in the end times. She expected that Lazarus would rise again in the end. Jesus, of course, gave her uh, and the other witnesses there a, a powerful representation of the fact that he has the power over life and death and raised Lazarus from the dead. John eleven twenty seven again, single condition for salvation. Do you believe that I am the Christ? Jesus asked Martha, yes, I believe that you have eternal life because you believe. And another portion of this good news is that we can comfort one another with the fact that we will be resurrected one day. As we are going through, uh, it, there's, it's overwhelming sometimes how many trials and difficulties that people are going through in our in our church and obviously around the world people are facing life and death even here in our in our congregation we're facing some of this but we can be comforted that one day 
Jesus Christ is going to come again and raise us from the dead. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 13, we'll close with this. Paul says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep or those who have died, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So we can comfort one another as we're going through the difficulties of life, looking forward to that day when Christ will come again for us. Whether we are uh, die before the rapture of the church or we are blessed to be that generation that sees him come in the clouds and resurrects us. We're all going to participate in that resurrection and that ought to cheer our hearts and, and edify us. Whatever we're going through in this life, we need to be comforted by the fact that Christ is coming again for us. And he can do that because he is the one who was promised to conquer sin he is the one who was preserved through death and rose again. And it is this precious truth that gives us life in Christ. Let's go to him in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for these truths that we've been able to look at in the Bible that show us the way to have life. We thank you that you are the God of the universe who decreed before the world was even created that you in human flesh would come into this world and die for our sins, but you wouldn't just be put into a grave and, and uh, be there forever like the rest of us. You rose again and you did not undergo decay just as your word said would happen. And we thank you and we praise you for that. We thank you for the assurance of our salvation through faith in you. And I pray that we would live each and every moment of each and every day in light of this, tr this most important truth that you have died for us and you rose again and we have life through faith and trust in you and that you are coming again for us one day. And may it even be today, we pray in Jesus' holy name. And...